right now on Matter of Fact. Gracias. With jobless claims rising and food lines expanding. I don't have any money right now. How will communities across the country recover? It's unbelievable to be living in the United States of America and seeing the millions upon millions of people suffering. Why the vaccine is not a cure for everything that ails us. And Bye. the emotional story of one ER doctor's fight to keep his family safe and his patients alive. My eight-year-old started crying. I don't want you to have coronavirus. Plus, degrees of difficulty. I don't think I've ever expected myself to be where I am now. When universities are struggling financially and students are saddled in debt, is college still the key to long-term success for families? Social mobility is part of our mission. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. The first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine are fueling hopes for health and economic recovery. But will the recovery be as lopsided as the effects of the pandemic? Black and brown communities suffer higher infection rates and more job losses because of the pandemic. Negative outcomes fueled by decades of factors like segregation, underemployment, economic and social discrimination. Those communities have also had less access to health care and other job-related benefits. If you look just at Latino workers, well, they've fallen so far behind, the Economic Policy Institute says it could take years, perhaps a decade, to make up the losses. This week, our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, takes us to Chicago to see the challenges facing Latino communities that are trying to get back on their feet. With Christmas less than a week away, Maria Santoyo and her family know this year will be a little different. We used to have a lot of presents, more family, uh, more food, and now this year is one present for each kid. That's because her husband's hours working in construction have been cut nearly in half since the pandemic started. Now he's willing to take any job he can get. I feel bad. Then I went to work because this, this year is real well to me. Their story, a familiar one in many Latino communities in Chicago, where COVID-19 has hit hard. Okay, gracias. Food banks like this one in the Pilsen neighborhood strained by the need. I'm trying not to make too much food, just enough food, and I'm just trying to be cautious with everything. Also trying to keep up with the demand of the nonprofit Gads Hill Center, created more than a century ago to help European immigrants settle in Chicago. Today, most of the families who are part of the school and other programs offered here are working poor Latinos, many in the service industry, and few with health care or savings. The families lost their jobs very soon after the city uh, lockdown. One third of our families in about five weeks had lost their jobs or were working fewer hours. The nonprofit relying on donations to meet the needs of its families, but it's just not enough. It is um, very hard to not be able to help our families more than what we are doing. Because what they need is a job. What they need is economic security. Am I unemployed? Absolutely. Am In the Chicago suburbs, Delia Gutierrez-McLaughlin 
also looking for that economic security. She's the daughter of first-generation Mexican-Americans, once helped by Gads Hill themselves. She went on to have a successful career in IT consulting, but that came to a halt in March when she lost her job. That's quite an unleveling feeling to be the person who needs a job, right? Who needs a livelihood. And as talented as I may be, I've got 20 years of background experience, I'm struggling. Hey, Sonia, how are you? While Delia's husband is still working, her unemployment runs out this month and their savings quickly dwindling. But the family still giving back donating what they can to local food pantries. It definitely gives us a great feeling to be able to at least give what we can to the community that needs it desperately. It's unbelievable to be living in the United States of America and seeing the millions upon millions of people um, suffering. We hope that more donations are gonna come. Gads Hill CEO Maricela Garcia says while heartbreaking, the pandemic is an opportunity for change. Our country depends on the well-being of those families. We are going to get out of this pandemic and move into a more powerful place, recover the economy if we lift those working families with us. Maria Santoyo getting a lift in her spirits. Gads Hill staff delivering much needed supplies. They treat me like a family family, which she says is much more important than what's under the tree. We can do this. We can keep going. We don't need a lot of money to be all together and be healthy. In Chicago, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Still ahead, surviving COVID as a doctor and a patient. So test results came back and? Okay. An ER doctor's emotional struggle in the hospital and at home. Plus, his life was just about to change. So you will literally be moved out of poverty? Yes. Like yeah, that? Like that. Until the pandemic hit, can he still turn things around? Welcome back, everybody. For many college students, the fall term is over. Plans for the spring semester are, in some cases, uncertain. Colleges and universities struggling financially because of COVID-19 revenue losses are looking for ways to safely return students to campus and ways to survive. Higher education can play a critical role in the nation's economic and social recovery, especially if colleges can create paths to upward mobility for lower income students disproportionately affected by the pandemic and address student loan policies that can bankrupt young graduates. Earlier this year, in partnership with the Gates Foundation and the Heckinger Report, we visited a school that's had success in doing just that. There's also a web application and Android mobile application. I'm curious as to why you guys chose to use Google's platform. Christian versus... Escobar will be the first in his family to graduate from college. He's a 21-year-old senior at Stony Brook University, about 60 miles east of New York City. What is your major? A uh, computer engineer mm -hmm. and applied mathematics and statistics. Wow. Yeah. His parents never went to college. They came from Guatemala in 1996, speaking only Spanish, had five kids, and settled in the New York City suburb of Hempstead, where the high school graduation rate is just 52%. More than 20% of the residents live below the poverty line. 
What does your mom do? What does your dad do? So my dad uh, works in construction, mm -hmm. and then my mom, she stays at home and sometimes cleans houses. So your family's been in poverty, really? Yes. Give yourself a hand for showing up on a Friday afternoon. Christian's fortunes are about to change, and that has everything to do with college. Not only is Stony Brook about to hand him a diploma, they helped him get a job at a major utility company in their IT department. What does that pay? Uh, it pays really good. <laughs> give me a give me a range. Eighty to ninety thousand. Wow. Yeah. So you will literally be moved out of poverty. Yes. Like yeah, that. Like that. Christian's success story is no outlier. Stony Brook University, a state school, ranks third among U.S. schools on the Social Mobility Index. It's a metric used by Harvard researchers to measure how well colleges do at propelling students from the bottom 20% of family incomes before college into the top 20% of incomes after graduation. How many of you guys actually work hands-on with students? Oh, everybody. Wow. How do they do it? The answer to that question lies in this room. These fellow students, administrators, counselors, and others all working together to get students to and through college. With all the things that you could focus on as a college, why focus on social mobility? I think social mobility is part of our mission as a public university. We're here to support students. We're here to transform lives. Okay, guys, welcome to our main library on campus, known as our Frank Melville Library. First, they need to admit the kind of students that need their help. Every year, Stony Brook admits about 100 students into its EOP, or Equal Opportunity Program, a statewide initiative for students from lower socioeconomic and academic levels. EOP values potential over more traditional markers like grade point averages and test scores. We start from literally day one that they arrive on, on campus and talk to them about the fact that they belong here. Um, that we don't make mistakes about that. They're here because we know they have what it takes to succeed. Just think about this as a moment in time where you like stop the molecule and you keep it still. The students attend a five-week academic boot camp before they even start college. So one of the skills that I think was very essential was learning how to study. Mm. I thought I was the smartest kid. In high school, I was doing really well in my classes. And when I got to college, I realized how unprepared I really was. How you doing with connecting with your professional buddies, your mentor? Kimberly Dixon created a core Stony Brook support initiative, the Diversity Professional Leadership Network, which provides students with mentors. Many of them are focused on helping them with their vision statements, helping them uh, establish uh, and achieve goals. I don't think I've ever expected myself to be where I am now, truthfully. It's uh, very rewarding and humbling. Christian graduated despite some COVID-19 setbacks. He recently accepted a full-time position at an asset management firm. And Christian's success is not singular. 68% of EOP students graduate in four years. The graduation rate across the board, 64% in four years. So a big congratulations to Christian. Next, after 10 months of staring down a pandemic. We're getting toward the end. The story is yet to be written. We're still writing this book. The doctor on the front lines sharing what life is like behind the scenes. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. COVID is still surging, and health officials across the country warn that hospitals are running out of ICU beds. 
All this as the first doses of the coronavirus vaccine are being distributed to frontline healthcare workers, workers exhausted from 10 months of long hours fighting for the survival of their patients, themselves, and their own families. Our correspondent Jessica Gomez and photojournalist Scott Curdy have been following one Wisconsin emergency room doctor and his family since the beginning of the pandemic. Here's a look at their journey. All right, guys, I'm going to head to work. I'm Bill Lieber, and I'm an emergency room physician. Based upon what I'm hearing from other physicians around the country, we're just at, at the beginning. Right now I'm headed into work. Going to work is just a little more tense and, you know, I don't anticipate that I would be one that would get extremely ill, but you just never know. So I just finished up my shift and uh, I tell you it was exhausting. Partway through the shift I started to not really feel so great. He just told me he was so tired and he had a headache and this cough was persisting and he just wanted to sleep. Okay, you go, lie down. I woke him up an hour later and his fever had gone up to 101. He was really showing symptoms. All right, I don't feel very good. I don't feel very good. I want to go. Packed his bags and he left right away to go over to the house that we had set up for this exact instance. So test results came back and? They're positive. Okay. My kids, I, I don't know how much they understand. Um, my eight-year-old started crying and said, I don't want you to have coronavirus. So she's really worried about me. Thanks for bringing me stuff. Thanks, Ellie. Now it's just headache, fatigue, but still not short of breath, so that's good. This is probably not the right time to tell you that I have an inkling of a fever. Oh no, you've probably got it also. I'm feeling really tired, um, run down. I'm scared, you know, I have like a lot of fears about my husband and myself and my kids. I'm now seven days out. I've been without fever. My symptoms are improving, ready to go home. I'm worried about Deb. A safer at home protest. Wisconsin Supreme Court today struck down the state's stay at home order. It looks like the social distancing and the precautions we're taking are working. We haven't been overwhelmed with uh, COVID, but you know, that can change and that can change quickly. It's kind of stressful because we're still cutting back on shifts and I mean, our volume's down, which means, you know, income is down. Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? It's really hard to be in isolation. You know, the kids are struggling. Last night we had just a complete meltdown. Governor Evers declared a new public health emergency and ordered people age five and up to wear face masks in enclosed public spaces. 
we definitely felt a pressure as a family to, to minimize our social contact and adhering to health recommendations. Back when COVID first hit in spring, the healthcare people and the, the people making the decisions on policy and whatnot, I think were generally well listened to and, and respected. Now that people are more comfortable with the situation, they've been living their lives all summer. Um, a lot of people have had it and recovered. They're just more comfortable living with COVID. The CDC, the White House, and the New York Times are all ranking Wisconsin among one of the worst states in the country for case numbers. The situation seven months later is that cases are rising now. They continue to climb and more and more people are getting infected. Good job. It feels like we're at a tipping point and at any minute we could become overwhelmed if we don't do something to slow this down. Oh, like if they're talking? We had no idea that seven months later we would still be in this holding pattern, not having any idea when it's gonna end. The, the story is yet to be written on this. We're still writing this book, and I hope that it has a good ending. Coming up, one of the first things they're remembered for is one of the last things they do. A brief background on this unchecked presidential power. With the talk of politics turning to pardons, we wanted to take a look at the history of this presidential power. Pardons are as old as the presidency itself. A pardon allows the president to wipe a crime from someone's record, shorten or delay a sentence, or release a person from fines or community service. But a presidential pardon is only for federal crimes, and it can't be issued for impeachment cases tried and convicted by Congress. The preemptive pardon of former President Richard Nixon in 1974 remains one of the most controversial. A month after he resigned in the wake of the Watergate scandal, his successor, Gerald Ford, granted him an unconditional pardon for all offenses he may have committed. Legal scholars across the country debate whether a president can pardon himself. Some say there's nothing in the Constitution explicitly that forbids it. And others say, well, it contradicts the idea that no one should be the judge and jury in their own case. Next, Inside the Viewfinder, to see how holiday traditions can still happen, even at a distance. Finally, a look at the holiday traditions that ground us, especially in the time of COVID. We're talking about the rituals and the memories that create a sense of connection, community, and meaning. So today, with the help of photojournalists from four Hearst newspapers, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Houston Chronicle, the Times Union of Albany, New York, and the Hearst Connecticut Media Group, we bring you a look from the viewfinder at how people are keeping the spirit of the holidays alive and well, even at a distance. We've posted these photos on our website, matteroffact.tv, along with a link to the stories. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.